Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, I am getting tired of waiting for a new president. Do we have a new president yet? What's the deal? We're getting closer, Jason. Uh, As of today, all six states where Trump tried to fight the results, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, they've all certified the results, making Biden's victory all but official. And our friend uh, Emily Murphy at the GSA has allowed the transition to progress. And Biden is now receiving his intel briefings. And he's going about now to announce his cabinet. And before we even talk about that slate of, of cabinet nominees and, and, and what we can expect from the Senate there. Maybe we should just pause, Jason, and give some perspective to our listeners who I know have been on edge about Trump stealing this election. Yeah, I mean, that's just not happening. Like, it's just important, I guess, to, to jump in and uh, one more pep talk, like he can keep trying to do this stuff. But I think it's pretty clear at this point that at least for the last few weeks, this has been about him saving face because he can't he can't look in the mirror and see someone who lost anything. Uh, it's just like not it's not something he can do. It's not in his operating system. And so he's just creating a narrative for himself. Somebody said this week that he's the only person who can gaslight themselves. Uh, and, and, and I think that's it. He's just he's creating that world. Uh, and and now that's sort of becoming a world in which he can create a, a grounds for a reelection campaign. But I really think it's just the world he wants to live in. You know, my favorite novel is this book called The Amazing Adventures of Cabular and Clay. And there's this line in the book, you know, don't worry about where you're escaping from, reserve your anxieties for your escaping to. And I think that's my advice to this, to our audience, which is don't worry about this election. We're going to, we've won it and it's going to be certified. Biden will be sworn in. To the extent we're anxious at all, let's be anxious about folks stealing future elections (laughs) and in plain sight. And there was a really good column from Dan Pfeiffer this morning where he basically was saying just that, where he's saying, look to redistricting, look to the census. You know, Republicans are, they've created now a permission structure within their party to try to get away with stealing elections from us in plain sight. And so we've just got to keep fighting that. Yeah. Instead of worrying about the last attack, like let's improve our defensive positions, I guess. Well, now we get to the fun part, Jason, where Biden gets to name his team and he had some pretty exciting announcements the past week. Uh, he announced he has an all-female communications team. Alejandro uh, Mayorkas for Homeland Security would be the first Latino to lead the organization. Tony Blinken, who I've, I've had the experience of working around, um, who will be a very competent and experienced Secretary of State. Janet Yellen, uh, Treasury, my, my good buddy Wally, uh, who's going to be the Deputy Treasury Secretary. 
Cecilia Rouse is going to be the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. I mean, there's just so many great names out there. Avril Haines. I just find it reassuring. And this is what we fought for is to have good, competent people. Uh, you know, these aren't like your splashy, super sexy names. You know, we're not, you know, naming celebrities to anything. This is just people who've been in the work, mostly people who've been the deputy of whatever it is they're now taking over. And it seems like we may enter an era where we have a more competent, focused government, Jason. Well, what, what strikes me about it is that it is not a series of consolation prizes for people who also ran for president, at least not so far. And I'm not saying that the people who also ran for president wouldn't be qualified for a lot of this stuff, but this is a governing cabinet. This is not a campaigning cabinet. It is not a politicking cabinet. It is not a trying to make a bunch of different political constituencies happy. It's These are really talented people who bring a really important perspective, and I think they can help me do a good job. And that's really interesting because it, it makes for, as you said, fewer splashy headlines. And and perhaps we'll see some more people in the future who are, you know, the crowd that maybe ran for president. But if you think about the last cabinet that was appointed, I mean, it was a whole bunch of people who also ran for things or who were just like longtime business friends of Trump, right? And this is like people who have run parts of government before and know what they're doing. Yeah, and it's almost, you know, had the last cabinet had the the feel of a horror movie where uh, by the end of the movie, almost nobody's left. You know, I think the only person <laughs> who was originally named to his cabinet that made it all the way through is Betsy DeVos. Uh, lucky us. Uh, we had her the whole time. <laughs> but one name that does seem like uh, it's headed for a brutal confirmation is our friend Neera Tandon for, the, um, for OMB. Uh, and for those of you who don't know who Neera Tandon is, she, she was the president of uh, the Center for American Progress, a longtime aide to a number of people, including Hillary Clinton. You know, she was one of the people whose emails were hacked and distributed during that whole thing, uh, but also has been somebody who's been in the middle of a, a bunch of contentious debates. And I think the Republicans, and including some people on the left, are gearing up for a fight to try to stop her. So maybe two-part question for you, Jason. Number one is like, what, what, what can we expect from that? And how should we view the fight over Nira? And the second is, Generally speaking, what kind of climate can we expect uh, for approval or lack thereof of these nominees? Well, first on Nira, I mean, I know you and I both know her and have, and have worked with her. She's somebody who's a friend of mine. I, I view Nira as a, a real believer in things, not somebody who's... I've never viewed Nira as somebody who's thinking about her next step. She she believes in causes. Uh, I did not know Nira at all until two days after the 2016 election when she called me. I just lost the race for Senate narrowly, and, and she called me to ask for my advice. She said, you know, there's a bunch of us here in Washington who clearly thought we knew what we... Uh, we're doing when it comes to winning over uh, some of these voters in the Midwest. And apparently we didn't know as much as we thought. So can you can you come out here and teach us some stuff, which I thought was I thought that spoke said a lot about, look, I mean, there's a lot of folks in Washington who just think they know everything. And there's not that many people who are like, oh, wow, we we can learn a lot still. And so that meant a lot to me. And on a trip a few weeks later to, to D.C., I sat down with her and we had a long conversation where she was just genuinely curious about things. And you know, she stands up for what she believes in. Frankly, I think if she were a man, I don't think people would see her as too partisan or too fierce of a fighter. They would just see her as a passionate advocate. Uh, I actually think Bill Kristol, the Republican, uh, made a really good point about her recently. Now, he's a never Trump conservative, but when this appointment was made, or this nomination was made, you know, he praised her as somebody who he said, you know, would have the strength to say no to spending requests mm. uh, across government, which 
you know, as a conservative, he's saying that's a really important thing for an OMB chair, no matter what their philosophy is. And then, you know, I know she's getting hit on the left. She's getting hit on the right. The, the left feels like Cap, you know, where she's been the president, is not liberal enough of a think tank. And then, like, Nikki Haley tweeted yesterday that she comes from this super liberal think tank. <laughs> and what everybody needs to remember, which it's a perfect, like, little meme right there about American politics right now. Um, but I think what people forget when it comes to the think tank world is that this is sort of our version of shadow government. That's how it works in America, whether you like it or not. I mean, in the UK, they have shadow governments, right? Like they have people who they say, if our party takes power, this person will be the minister of this. But we don't have that. What we have is there's conservative think tanks, there's liberal think tanks, and people go to those when their party's out of power and they craft ideas for when their party is in power. So if you think about it that way, doesn't it make actually quite a, a great deal of sense that sort of the largest think tank on the left for crafting policy for if the left takes power, that the person who runs that would be in a position like office of management and budget? I mean, when you look at it that way, it actually is sort of a natural thing. Right. You know, this whole thing reminds me of my old boss, Susan Rice, who wasn't named uh, to anything. And I think, you know, one could surmise it's probably because we didn't win the Senate. And this would be the second time now that she's been knocked off of the cabinet. Uh, the last time she was, you know, she was put forward for secretary of state. And because of, you know, this contrived hysteria over Benghazi, she didn't make it through. Uh, and it's it sucks. And, and same deal as what you're saying, you know, another woman of color that there was a very successful info campaign against. And it makes you, it's it's sad just because it, it prevents good people from serving in government, you know, and for everybody who's actually formally stopped, which who knows what's going to happen with Nira, you know, like Biden nominated her and he's going to fight for her. But for every every nominee that's actually stopped, there are tons of people who aren't nominated because the, the principal doesn't want the fight. It's It's tough, you know, and I think it prevents a lot of good people from serving. Well, and I think one of the arguments that you're going to hear, probably not as often on cable news, but it'll be alluded to publicly by the Republicans in the Senate, and then it'll be just said outright by, you know, the occasional cable host, but by your brother-in-law, which is that the idea that this is sort of this diverse cabinet for the purposes of diversity only, as if this isn't a group of people who are imminently qualified to do this work. Uh, and, and, you know, they'll say, well, look, he just, he wanted to satisfy all these different groups and he's playing this woke identity politics. The thing about that is, is that while this gets characterized, like creating a, a cabinet that is really diverse gets characterized as an ideological statement in our modern politics or some sort of broad affirmative action move, if you were to look at America without knowing anything about our racial history or our politics, and all you knew was our demographic makeup, and then you saw just photographs of, of this cabinet that's being nominated, it would never occur to you that there was anything extraordinary about this cabinet at all. Because it's, it's just, it just represents what America actually is, which doesn't actually have to be some broad political statement. Before we move on from this, what can we expect generally from these confirmations? Like, I would, I, I'll put it out there. I wouldn't be surprised if the Republicans stopped every one of these people, even if they're reasonable, or if they let almost all of them through because it's not good politics for them. Um, I just don't know how things work. I'm not a master of like the Senate process. I don't know, like, if Rand Paul can stop everybody on his own if he wanted to. I, I just don't know how the procedure works. I think what's going to happen, I, I don't, 
I'm I'm with you. I don't know what the actual result's going to be, but I think that the indicator to watch is simply just going to be the people who think that they're going to be the Republican nominee in 2024, which is not particular to the Republican Party, right? I mean, if you think back to when Trump was appointing or nominating his cabinet four years ago, you had, a, you know, actually, I, I remember sitting down with uh, Schumer once around that time, and he referred to the group that wanted to run for president in 20 as the presidents in his caucus. He just was like, he was like, which is uh, you know, like I got all of his caucus, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, he goes, he goes, he goes, I got to deal with the presidents, uh, you know, and and the problem he was having at that moment was like there were, you know, things he wanted to bargain on that he couldn't bargain on because the presidents were having a race to who could be the most against the and it's going to be the same thing on the right. So you've got a whole series of folks who think that they're going to be that they want to be the Republican nominee and they're not going to let anybody be more anti Biden or however you want to put it than them. And so it's sort of a standoff, right? If if they don't choose to pick this fight, then the fight won't get picked. But if a couple of them, if Ted Cruz and a couple others start doing it, well, then it's just going to be a big race to it. And and I, I guess it comes down to how many of them are there and and who controls the senate obviously as these as these debates take place in our lives like with the people we know there's two points i think we should make to to the regular folks out there which one is look the government has to actually function if so if they go to the course of trying to stop like every nominee or you know the majority of the nominees i think we have to say look they they have advice they have consent but it's not about veto power. They And they also, by the way, if they end up with the Senate, they have oversight, particularly if they have the majority. So the idea here is, like, the president, just as Trump did, should get the vast majority of his nominees, if not all of them. They should be appointed. He should get the cabinet that he wants. And then there should be oversight over that. That's how it's supposed to work. But that's not the most effective argument. The most effective argument is not to go into any of these traps to debate a nominee's personality or things a nominee has said in the past or done in the past or any of that stuff. Don't get into any of the particulars about the nominees. Talk about the policies that the person you're talking to does or does not like when it comes to the nominee. Because as always, we are strongest when we argue policy. So whoever it is, uh, you know, just say, okay, Let's talk about the policy they stand for that you don't like, because here are the policies that they would push in this particular position that they're going into. And here's why I think those policies are good. Yeah. And there are a whole host of uh, positions that he hasn't named yet, namely education that I'm anxiously awaiting, because I do think that there are going to be some really interesting policy debates uh, around those nominations. And this pick from Biden, I think, is going to signal a lot about where we're heading uh, at a time when our education system has been probably more in peril than it's ever been before. So I'm pretty excited, even though I know I'm going to be, I may not love Biden's pick. I'm actually really excited just for the debate, because I don't think people talk enough about policy uh, around our kids. For the same reason, I'm really excited to see who gets nominated for attorney general, because I'm hoping that it's somebody who, you know, I'm confident they will be a strong voting rights champion, but I'm I'm curious to see if it's going to be somebody who really has a lot of experience uh, in the in that legal issue in voting rights specifically. And then the other one that is really, and it's, I don't think it's cabinet level, but has fallen by the wayside in what we think about because it's been mothballed during the Trump administration is the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection yeah. Bureau. Yeah. That's a huge challenge, right? They, they completely mothballed a super important agency. It was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren. It's, it's a, still a pretty new agency. I think that's a big challenge, having somebody in there who can aggressively you know, get that engine going again. Our Quarantine Corner today is brought to us by our friends at Noom. 
And, you know, every time I think about Noom, I think about um, building new healthy habits. Jason, uh, what's going on in your world in that respect? I have finally, now that I am 39 and a half, so just in the shadow of my 40th birthday, begun to learn how to cook a little, uh, which is exciting. I make stuff and I put it in the fridge and then we eat it during the week. I feel immensely useful. Diana is bragging about this to friends and relatives that she's just eating food sometimes that she didn't prepare, that, that I cooked. I saw something exciting this morning. I couldn't believe it on your Instagram. You want to talk about that? Well, she she got me, first of all, it's exciting that I was excited that as a surprise, she got me like stuff for poaching eggs. Uh, just just the fact that that excites me is a big step forward in, in my life and my growth as, a, as an adult. Uh, and so, yeah, and then I realized like if I can poach eggs, I can make eggs Benedict. So I, I made eggs Benedict and it, I felt like I was living in a nice hotel. I've been making frittatas. I, I guess I make a lot of stuff with eggs mostly so far, <laughs> but like, you know, sweet potatoes and like some dinner entrees. Anyway, so if anybody out there has suggestions, and this is important, on healthy dishes that are super simple and quick, because I'm not like good at this yet. And I also still don't have the attention span to spend more than about 10 minutes preparing something. Uh, so if people have suggestions on that, just tweet them at me and I'll start making stuff. Excellent. You and I are both reading the same book right now, which is called uh, Beneath the Scarlet Sky by Mark Sullivan. And I love this book. I'm two thirds of the way through it right now. You'll notice a pattern, listeners, that most of my favorite books are World War II era sort of buddy stories. But this book is about an Italian teenager who helps people escape Italy through the Alps uh, and becomes World War a spy II. in the becomes German a army. Spy, yeah, it's and I don't want to say it too much more. A true story. Well, that's yeah. all. This is all on the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, uh, and so and it's amazing. It's like a it's a great love story. It's a, an adventure story, and I can't recommend it enough. I love it. Um, every chance I can, I try to steal a couple minutes just to keep reading it. And it's one of those books that I'm already anticipating being sad that I'd finished it. You know, if you ever have that feeling when you finish a book and you're just like, man, I. What am I going to read now? You know, nothing's going to compare to this. So they're apparently making this into a movie. And it is, I, I am never that person who finds out a book I like is being made into a movie and gets upset because because they're like, oh, they're going to ruin it. I'm never that person. This is the first time that I'm like, oh, I'm really worried about it. And I have questions like, are they going to do subtitles? What are they going to, you know, which I'm actually rooting for. Anyway, it's that good of a book that I'm just like, oh, I'm really, really nervous about how the movie turns out. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, it's almost like you're selfish. It's like if you 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 love something or you love this band, and then everybody else starts to listen to it, which is what you should probably want. But there's some weird thing about us that makes you a little bit upset. Yeah, like that other when everybody discovered discovers it. your restaurant because it was put on some restaurant show, and you're like, oh, that was my little dive place. Yeah, at least though, in yeah. that case, there's a limited amount of seats. Like for yeah. us, it's like everybody could, it's like, it's not a scarce resource, this book. Everybody should read it. So listeners, check it out. Read it with us. It's called Beneath the Scarlet Sky. Can't recommend it enough. So Thanksgiving's over. You're probably thinking about things like, how are you going to get back on the wagon with your workout routine? How do you not give up hope with more holidays coming up? You know, Noom could be there for you. Yeah. And Jason, you know, one of the ways in which you and I became closer is we have this little fitness group together. And one common experience I have with members of our group is, is not how to handle things when they're going well, but how to deal with setbacks. And one thing I love about Noom is that it gives you this community of people and a coach and a series of tools that you can put together to actually make the experience of bouncing back from adversity 
fun and motivating. But Noom doesn't just tell you what to do or not to do. It teaches you how to make those decisions for yourself. So look, we want you to sign up for your trial today at Noom, and that's noom.com slash majority. But what I want to be clear about is advertisers like Noom are why we can bring you this show. So if you're a regular listener of the show, then you want to support the show and you get the benefit of being able to use a product like Noom. So you can sign up for your trial at noom.com slash majority. Make sure you use the code. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash majority to start your trial today. That's noom, N-O-O-M dot slash majority. Do you listen to podcasts? Of course you do. You're listening to one right now. And if you love podcasts, then you'll love Stitcher. And the all-new Stitcher is the easiest way to discover and listen to podcasts for free across iOS and Android. And you could choose your download preferences and listen at virtually any speed. Stitcher gives you access to your latest episodes, downloads, and favorite shows all in one convenient place. It's podcast listening made simple the way it should be. Stitcher is home to all your favorite podcasts, including some of our favorites like Armchair Expert, Smartless, Revisionist History, This American Life, uh, and of course your favorite, Majority 54. With Stitcher, you can listen to your podcasts anytime, anywhere. Majority 54 has never sounded better, so give the all-new Stitcher a try, download it in the App Store, or at stitcherapp.com slash majority54. So in this week in misinformation, uh, we're going to take a a slightly different tack. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about where a lot of the cognitive dissonance and resistance to COVID-19 restrictions is coming from, and maybe go through a little bit more of a process of self-reflection. And to start off, COVID is ravaging many parts of the United States, and there are new lockdowns being considered and implemented across the country, including in California. Uh, New York City uh, shut down its schools, but now is, is reopening elementary schools, which is incidentally, Jason, the approach that we suggested over the summer um, when we talked about the need to do a phased-in approach and focus on it, elementary. It's the approach that you suggested because you have a background in that kind of thing. And I just went, uh-huh, yeah. This is just a backdoor way of, of praising myself. Uh, well, yeah, thank, thank well, you for noticing. Well, um, I, I, here I am to front door praise you. I walk right in. Hey, good job. You were right. Thank you. I'm proud of me too. I'm proud of me too. <laughs> well, uh, districts including Chicago, DC, and Philadelphia uh, are also considering uh, or already implementing bringing back young children, which is something that countries around the world have been experimenting with, uh, from what I understand, with some success. And uh, the CDC met Tuesday and actually agreed on a on guidelines for a phased in approach to the implementation of the vaccine. And so we're actually at the place now where Europe uh, just approved the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, I think the UK just did today. Uh, And we're heading in that direction. And right now the CDC, the way this works is they now have approved the first category of people who are going to get the vaccine, which are essential health workers, particularly in nursing homes. I am worried, as you know, you heard me talk about this, that the new political flashpoint is going to be how we categorize who gets the vaccine first and whether it's safe at all. So you have it from both sides, like the anti-vaxxers and that whole movement and the politicization of that on the left and right. And then also the politicization of scarcity politics, like not being able to give it to everybody. And if God forbid any of these categories have any tinge of politics to them or the possibility of such, this could get ugly. Well, let's do the first category first, because I think you're completely right. It, it is just ripe for manipulation into a political issue by the right. I mean, you can, you can hear Tucker Carlson 
you can hear it in his own voice as he as he goes on and he and he tells people these tales about how well these folks are getting it because the left likes these people mm-hmm. and you're not I mean it's just like I mean I don't think any of it will be based in reality but it is it's just made for them and and it's it it's it's frightening the opening that it provides and so I think we have to really be on guard against it because who are in these categories the people who are most likely to be vulnerable they also tend to be people who are living in poverty, people who the left tends to focus on when it comes to social services anyway. So yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And I think we've, we've got to start thinking about how to kind of prepare the people in our social circles for that. Like you, you always call it anchoring, just mentioning, Hey, you know, I think these groups are going to need it first, like, so that it's not a case of first impression when people start to hear that. Yeah. And just to prepare our listeners for this, there are going to be different groups, and it's not going to be apparent right away, I don't think, although nothing would surprise me in terms of our politics taking a bad turn more, more quickly than, than people expect. But there's going to be the first phase, which actually could happen by the end of this year, where Pfizer and Moderna are saying that uh, around 22 million uh, people could get vaccinated. And, and, th- and the way the vaccine is going to work is there are going to be two doses you need that are separated by a few weeks. So this is going to be a logistical challenge. But people who work in nursing homes and are residents of nursing homes are going to be part of that first phase, including other health workers. Then there's going to be another phase of other health workers that's going to probably happen in January and February. And then when it gets to the third category, which will be around probably February and beyond, which is what we categorize as, quote unquote, essential health workers, that's going to be the big debate, it seems like. Like, what's essential workers? Cops, firefighters, teachers, et cetera, service workers, and that's when things are going to start to get ugly. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's a lot of people who like who wait tables or stock like stock the shelves in grocery stores, well, now you're talking about groups of people who the right is gonna is gonna say, look demographically at who's getting this. Why is that the case? I mean, look, let's be honest. Like, I think Tucker Carlson's going to be like, doesn't seem that it's going to white people in the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think he's just going to say that. And, yeah. And he's going to sure. say, why does Joe Biden want white people in the suburbs to die? I, I'm really worried about it, and I think we have to be prepared uh, for that. And then the second part that you mentioned is, you know, the anti-vaxxer crowd. Like, I've already started to hear anecdotally, well, I heard that, you know, they're keeping these records, and I heard, that, you know, all this stuff. And so if you hear that stuff, you've, I mean, I can tell you when I hear that, I push back on it really hard because I want the people around me to get the vaccine uh, as soon as they can. Uh, and so I, I would encourage everybody to push back on that stuff as soon as you hear it. Yeah, and if we're being fair, it's the left and the right, right? The, the anti-vaxxer oh, for sure. crowd, for sure, is, is coming from both sides. That's the thing about that kind of extremism is it's a circle, and it meets on the top and the bottom, right? You may be on the left or the right, but if you go far enough around the circle to the you know to the kind of wacky end, you you find yourself like right next to the you, it's indistinguishable the left and the right at that level. I don't know if that makes any sense on an, in an audio format. Oh, in the sure. visual format, people should know <laughs> I'm doing things with my hands. <laughs> well, you and I have been kicking around this article uh, from the Atlantic uh, by Amanda Mull, and basically what she does is she does a really good job of of, of going through state by state, and particularly she looks at uh, New York and Rhode Island. But this could be true of a lot of states where she basically just shows that the the way that the, the restrictions are landing on the public have massive contradictions that aren't trivial and that are very frustrating to the people trying to do their best to adhere to them. And so she points out things like in Rhode Island, 
you're prohibited, at least as she she's written it, from having anybody in your over your house who's not a member of your household. But you could go out to a restaurant uh, and dine indoors. And if you hire a caterer, you can have up to like 70-something people outside, but you're actually prohibited from gathering in a park with even one person from outside of your household. And I think this comes together with I think perceived and probably real hypocrisy coming from our leaders where Cuomo is telling people not to have Thanksgiving dinner, but then he's like, you know, inviting his grandma over and his aides are at press conferences without masks indoors and Gavin Newsom's having, you know, fancy dinners indoors and all this. And I think like, it's not to pick on any of them because I haven't been perfect either. None of us have been, but that's part of the point here, which is like in reading this, it just made me wonder, Jason, are we really is this the biggest political liability and moral liability that we have as a party and a country right now is that we're just screwing this up so bad and frustrating citizens? I don't see it as we're screwing up handling the pandemic. I feel like we are really struggling to figure out what to do in the absence of any cooperation from the other party because because they still control the Senate and the White House, which means there's no federal relief. There's no new federal relief. And then we largely, the Democrats largely control the the large urban areas. Uh, and so as a result, it's, and, and anybody who's interested in this, we had, I think, a great conversation last week, if you missed it, it aired on Thanksgiving Day with Quentin Lucas, the mayor of Kansas City. And it was all about how do you govern during a pandemic when you are now not receiving the federal relief that you need? Because one of the big thrusts of that article, which I agree was really good, was the numbers are X now. The numbers were were much you know less severe in the spring, and yet we were shutting everything down in the spring. And then you know the author pointed out, well, yes, you have to acknowledge that the big distinction is there was federal relief then. There was a safety net. You could require restaurants to shut down. You could require businesses to shut down because you knew that they could qualify for federal aid. And with that not existing, you don't have that safety net. So then, yeah, it is, I think, a horrible conundrum to be into. What do I do to keep people safe if you're a local leader, knowing that there's no safety net if I shut them down? And I think the best point made in that article was that maybe the best thing to do is maybe it's not a policy change from where you are, but it's a rhetorical change, right? Instead of saying, uh, it's okay to go eat in a restaurant, um, which we know it's probably one of the best ways to, to spread the virus is eating inside a restaurant. Yeah, like 20 times more likely to get coronavirus apparently indoors uh, than outdoors. So, so, you know, the author is suggesting, just be honest about the fact that there's no federal relief. I I cannot shut these things down because they'll never open back up if we don't have federal relief. But I have to tell you, I don't advise eating inside a restaurant. Like, like I don't think it's a good. I can't shut it down because I don't have federal relief. But I wish I could shut it down. It is I think the best way to message it so that people can make informed choices instead of thinking, well, if it's allowed, I guess it's safe. Yeah, and you know the difficult position that puts political leaders in is. You still have to deal with that business owner who's somebody you know you you're responsible for and all that, and you just don't have the tools to save them, right? So if you're right. like, hey, like, I I can't lie about it being unsafe to dine indoors at your restaurant, and it really is a conundrum. Put on top of that, the fact that the Supreme Court now is tying the hands of uh, of local officials who want to limit the size and scope of all activities, but included within that would be religious activities. Now that tool is taken away from local leaders as well. But that's why there has to be federal relief. Like, so I think it comes down to making sure that everybody understands that it is a different decision matrix when there's no federal relief. And then finally, 
we we cannot let people out there like the average just opinion making citizen think that this is just a regular disagreement in congress or that this is that this is washington failing to get this done this is mitch mcconnell and the president refusing to get it done and everybody needs to understand the issue that is holding this up right now and it's it's immunity from liability from lawsuits and I want to take a second to explain what that is, because when you understand what it is that is keeping Mitch McConnell from moving forward on federal aid related to COVID, it will drive you nuts. And it is that he, he's not trying to protect you know the rest of us from the virus. He's trying to say that if your boss, like if you work at a corporation and your boss says, Yes, we had you know several people uh, who tested positive last week, and yes, they were here all week, and yes, some of the people who were exposed to them are still here. You have to come in this week. If you don't come in, you're fired. Now, if that happens, Mitch McConnell is not saying like you have to go to work. Mitch McConnell is saying that if you get fired for refusing to go to work or if you go to work and you get sick, you're not allowed to sue. You're not allowed to sue and say, you knew that it was unsafe for me. Or in another respect, like there's a Tyson Foods example in, I think, Nebraska, where the, the supervisors were literally making bets on how many people would get sick. They were not telling the people about the exposure to the virus. They were just taking bets on how many of them would get sick. And then some of them got sick and some of them died. Mitch McConnell is holding up relief because he doesn't think that the families of the people who died, the families of the workers who didn't know what they were going into and were not told by their employers so they could make a choice, that those people... Those families shouldn't be allowed to sue. Like, that's the reason that we don't have relief. You know, this is an area that people don't talk about enough. Uh, and there's a, there's a great book called Tailspin by Stephen Brill. And uh, he kind of goes through some of these areas in which our policy and law has evolved over the past few decades to make it harder and harder for citizens to sue corporations. And this has been a huge project of the right. And what they want the public to believe is that they're just protecting the small business from you know the shark uh, trial lawyer who who wants to make everything more expensive, right? And I think there was a day in which there was a lot of that bullshit happening, where there was a trial lobby. You know, I, I think of a state like Mississippi, for example, where most of the rich people I I met when I in the my years living in and around Mississippi were former trial lawyers who like were were gaming the system in in the in many respects. But those days are long gone. We all now every time we go to a corporation for something or we buy a product, we sign these huge things that basically mean that if anything were to happen, we're going to be sent to arbitration, not to an actual court, and our rights are being more and more limited. Um, because of policies that protect those types of agreements. And now they're trying to take all of COVID and basically put it into that category. I, I don't even I don't even agree with the idea that there was a time when the system before. was being abused. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but look, I'm a former trial lawyer, so I'm perhaps biased. But the thing is, what I'll say about it is, is that the right has been very effective at using the fact that there are some people who have become very wealthy doing this work. Therefore, it is somehow an abuse or it is wrong. But the truth is just the way the system is set up, it was set up to incentivize lawyers to take on cases that nobody would take on if they were going to get like, like if you needed to get paid, whether you won or lost, most of these cases never get taken on, but they get taken on because, well, if I win, 
then I'll get paid. And then there is a big result for that at the end because of the gamble you took. But that's because these are clients who can't afford a lawyer, right? And so I, the public has no idea that, you know, the fact that you, that seatbelts are required, the fact that cars don't flip over all the time, that, you know, all this different stuff that there's not lead in our water usually, all of that is because of trial lawyers. It's not because of any legislature anywhere that made a rule. It's because of courts and trial lawyers. But there's a contradiction between the, f the philosophy that's being espoused here, right? So there's, on the one hand, they're saying these arbitration agreements and all these other things should be allowed because it's a free market. People should be able to contract anything, right? But on the other hand, they want to create vast swaths of law that preclude you from ever suing due to an illness, right? Which is basically saying, we can't trust you as a free market to be able to deal with the 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 downsides of that risk. Like like I want to preclude you as a citizen from even being able to to hold anybody accountable to that. So they want it both ways. They they think juries are capable of deciding whether people should be executed or not, but not capable of assessing damages in a civil case. I mean, that's what that's it comes a great down way to. Of putting it. Yeah. And 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 the thing about the free market argument is that frequently we're talking about employment in these cases. And there is no there's no equality in that in that contract arrangement. If you work for Amazon, like it's not an equal relationship no. between you and your and your employer. What really, going back to the COVID thing, what kills me about this is this is the Republicans saying, you decide, like, it's not safe for me to go to work. Well, we're not going to provide any money to, like, actually make it so you can feed your family. So we're going to force you to go to work. And then we're going to say, well, you made a choice. Uh, so, you know, you can't actually sue. And even worse than that, they're the same people who are fighting any mask mandate to make your workplace safer, especially right. if you're a service employer, employee. You <laughs> so, know, not even that, fighting the mask mandate and fighting the culture around masks. You know, there's a reason why yeah. the positivity rate for COVID among the, House, the Senate GOP caucus, if it were its own state, it would have the highest COVID rate, uh, not only in the country, but probably <laughs> the world, you know? Yeah. I mean, bottom line is the reason that you're not seeing more, more stringent regulations to keep people safe is because there's not federal money coming down. And the reason there's not federal money coming down is because Mitch McConnell wants to protect Amazon and make sure that it can force its people to go to work even when it's not safe and never have to pay a consequence. That's the reason all this is happening. It's time to grab an oar, Jason. You have anything for us this week? I do. I'm going to focus on Georgia again. I put this out on social media a bit as well, and you'll see me pushing it more, but you can go to showupforgeorgia.org. It's showupforgeorgia.org. And if you donate there, you'll be supporting a mix of on-the-ground Georgia groups that are organizing, uh, that are registering voters, that are turning out voters in the Senate races there. So it's showupforgeorgia.org. All right. As always, uh, folks, feel free to leave us a voicemail uh, so that we can address the stuff that you are hearing out there directly. Uh, it's like great market research for us, and we really enjoy interacting with the listeners this way. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. Find us on social media. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram, and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. If you think climate change is too intimidating, scary, or depressing to talk about, you might find the Hot Take podcast pretty refreshing. 
It's hosted by Mary Anna East Hegler and Amy Westervelt. Hot Take is about the climate story, all the ways that we're talking and not talking about it, and how that conversation influences everything from politics to your favorite Netflix series. Their conversations with journalists and thinkers like Rihanna Gunn-Wright, Kate Aronoff, David Wallace-Wells, and more shift easily from climate anxiety to F-bombs, critical analysis of race, gender, and climate to dad jokes. If you're looking for a climate show where people talk like humans, process real emotions, have an honest conversation about how climate change intersects with race, class, and gender, and literally everything, Hot Take is for you. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.